0: Welcome to Fudson Film. I am Drew. Over there is Scott. That's me. And today we will be continuing our discussion of the works of the legendary Japanese animation company Studio Ghibli. In our first two episodes on this topic earlier this year, we explored the work of Miyazaki Hayao. Miyazaki is the most famous human name associated with the studio. Undoubtedly that grinning, umbrella-toting, furry forest troll trumps his creator... But there is one other particularly significant person inextricably linked with Studio Ghibli. One whose name is less heralded, but whose best works are at least the equal of those of Miyazaki, if not better. Though this is not an argument I will get into. Arguing which of many tremendously good things is the most tremendously good thing seems a waste of time of all involved. I refer, of course, to writer, director and producer Takahato Isao, Born in Issei in 1935... He survived a US air raid at the age of nine, an experience that would inform his debut animated feature for Ghibli, and studied French literature at the University of Tokyo, before starting a career with Toei Animation as an assistant director. While at Toei, Takehata met a young animator called Miyazaki Hayao, and the two have been collaborating ever since, making their biggest impact when they co-founded Studio Ghibli in the 1980s after the success of the Miyazaki-directed, Takahata produced Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. While not as prolific a director as Miyazaki under the Ghibli banner, Takahata's works are more varied in style, though Takahata himself is not an animator, and some are strikingly distinctive. He also produced Mikhail Dudok-Dewitz's The Red Turtle, Studio Ghibli's first international co-production. And while Miyazaki-san may have the largest mindshare when it comes to their partnership Animator Yasuo Otsuka, who worked with the duo for a long time, has said that Miyazaki gets his sense of social responsibility from Takahata and that, without him, Miyazaki would probably just be interested in comic book stuff. Hmm. Takahata's first feature for Ghibli wasn't in fact an animation at all, but the documentary The Story of Yanagawa's Canals, a project which consumed the director and threatened to use up all of the money from the success of Nausicaa. We're skipping that particular work though, partly because we're going to focus on animation and really not least because it's virtually impossible to get a hold of outside of Japan. I mean,
1: I have. It is possible. Um, And uh, it's actually relatively charming, but it is at the end of the day about the history of canals. So you have to judge whether the incredible soundtrack and the really quite lovely cinematography of it will balance out the fact that it's a documentary about canals, <laughs> which I'm nerdy enough to really quite like, but yeah, uh, it's not everyone's it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea.
0: That is the only Studio Ghibli work that I've not actually seen, and I've been vaguely intrigued by it. For I had this sense that it might be almost hypnotic. Hmm. Don't know if that seems accurate or not, Scott. I shall have to borrow that off you at some point to watch it. But we're focusing on this animation today. Yeah. Um, but before we begin, though. It's uh, as we did with Miyazaki Do you remember what your first experience of Takahata's work was? Yes,
1: because for once it's actually surprisingly recent It was only like last year And the first thing I'd seen was when my wife forced me to watch My neighbour the Yamadas Which, I, I say forced, <laughs> it's not entirely great right. uh, I've just, it, somehow I've just never The monster I, I, she Scott Yes, sub- subjecting me to one of her favourite films How dare she? I just never got round to seeing any of Takahata's works before, despite their reputation. In particular, some of his more highly regarded stuff has a reputation for being a little difficult to watch. Hello, Grave of the Fireflies. So yeah, the first time I'd seen it was uh, uh, My Neighbour the Yamadas, which is not really the place to start, uh, (laughs) um, I would suggest. But that was my first experience. But I hadn't seen any of the others until like a week or so ago. So, so really? this has been wow. quite this this has been quite, an, quite a quite a fruitful week, actually. Um so so a yeah, that, so.
0: Quite an intense uh week too to have done all of that in such a short time. Yeah. So I'm not sure what the first tag I had to film I saw was I suspect Grave of the Fireflies. I saw that a long time ago. Um, and I've seen it several times since so it's probably that naturally mm-hmm. in my my storied DVD collection of films that I never got around to watching until, for instance, this podcast forced me to. But I hadn't seen My Neighbours, <laughs> the Yamada's, although I do recall buying that from I think, CD Wow when they were just like the best outlet for that sort of stuff years and years mm-hmm. ago, like probably 15 years now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if, if that is a symptom of what I said, though, that he doesn't have the mind share that Miyazaki has and... So his films are not quite so celebrated, not so well known. If that's part of the reason that um, some of his films remained unwatched for so long.
1: Yeah, possibly. I've no excuse for this, <laughs> for not watching them. Um, it just never occurred to me to do it, but yeah.
0: So, unfortunately, we've got no interesting stories of our first first introduction, to them like we did with Miyazaki. So. I
1: thought my story was very interesting. It was.
0: I'm sorry, one recent? of us doesn't have an interesting story The other one is browbeaten by their wife <laughs> <laughs> Watch this film that is good and I like <laughs> uh, You have married a monster, Scott My arm, it's so <laughs> twisted And in case she's listening A lovely, lovely monster who I've liked from the moment I met her But still a monster nonetheless <laughs> <laughs> Though, Let's get to the business hand in, To which end? Let us begin with the light and breezy Grave of the Fireflies <laughs>
1: I've not made many notes for Grave of the Fireflies. In fact, I've made one. It says, (laughs) Waaaaa!
0: Isao Takahata's first animated feature for Studio Ghibli was released in Japan as a double bill with Miyazaki's My Neighbour Totoro, which must have created some... (laughs) 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 Yes. Which must have created some tonal whiplash, to say the least. (laughs) It seems an odd choice to follow the magical, delightful and whimsical adventures of two children and a forest spirit with a film that begins with an adolescent sleeping rough in a subway station with the accompanying narration, That was the night I died. (laughs) I think that must have been quite the emotional gut punch. (laughs) Upon release, it was commercially, though certainly not critically, a failure, due almost certainly to that odd pairing. Such curious marketing and distribution did the film a great disservice, no doubt turning away many potential viewers. And that is a great and genuine pity, because it is wonderful, if such a word is appropriate to its story. Based on a semi-autobiographical short story of the same name by Nosoka Akiyuki, Grave of the Fireflies tells the story of Seta and his young sister Setsuko and their lives in Kobe in the last months of World War II. A fleet of US bombers carpet the city in incendiary bombs. And while Seta and Setsuko are unharmed, their mother dies from burn injuries from the fires that destroy much of the city. The siblings are forced to live with an aunt, who grudgingly takes them in. As things get worse for Japan in the war, and rations become ever more restricted, the aunt begins to resent the presence of Setsuko and Seta and considers them a burden, with the attention in the household increasing until Seta and his sister leave, making for themselves an erstwhile home in an abandoned bomb shelter. The only light in this place at night is from the captured fireflies. But these are short-lived creatures. And on their first morning there, a distraught Setsuko buries their bodies while asking why they, and their own mother, had to die. Existence is difficult for the children, and the little money their mother left them runs out, which, coupled with the increasing cost and scarcity of foodstuffs in Japan, sees Seto forced to steal to feed his sister. It is not enough, however, and Setsuko soon becomes ill from malnutrition a condition from which she never recovers, and to which Seda himself succumbs a few weeks later, bringing us back to the beginning of the film. Like I said, it's cheery and light-spirited, Grave of the Fireflies. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have tears in my eyes just thinking about this, as I do every time that I watch it, and as I did when I was writing this. One glimpse of the Sukuma fruit drops tint, which plays such a prominent role in the film, and my eyes moisten. It is haunting, sad, beautiful, melancholy. Yet still, Grip of the Fireflies manages to contain moments of joy and delight, as well as elements of resilience and fortitude, even if the central characters don't make it to the end of the film. For that reason, and for many others, it always rewards repeat viewing. Returning to it, you can appreciate even more its use of silence and its poetic structure. Like the great Ozu Yasujiro, Takahata uses pillow shots a sort of visual punctuation based on the pillow words of Japanese poetry. And further reading and cultural knowledge can bring to light the influence of Hiroshige and even the Belgian erge in the film's landscapes. Much of this knowledge is, naturally, more common and obvious to the Japanese audience, and from a Western perspective we need to work harder to extract the same texture from this film's fabric. But it is absolutely an effort worth making. Though marketed at families see it's shared billing with Totoro, and with a family-friendly rating. This is a very adult film, though one I do believe that more thoughtful children could, and should, watch. It is a fine example of Takahata's supreme skill as writer and director of making his characters and story realistic. Not visually, these of course remain cartoons, but in terms of tone, emotion and behaviour. Some assert that this belongs on the list of greatest war films ever made and i largely agree though it's debatable whether as many contest that it is an anti-war film at least in the more obvious ways certainly the director himself has strenuously objected to such classification and i tend to go more towards his assertion that this is an anti-social isolation film rather than an anti-war film and for me it is an absolutely anti anything that causes children to suffer film whether that's war an uncaring state, or unloving relatives. What it also is, is absolutely magnificent and a must-see. Not just for fans of Studio Ghibli or animation in general, but for fans of cinema. I really can't recommend this film enough. Although, prepare some tissues.
1: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Both on the recommendation and the tissues. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> it's uh, surely the most powerful animated film that I've seen. I, I
0: um, couldn't disagree with that, certainly uh, not.
1: I mean, I've seen a lot of, awful lot of animated films that I like. I know animation does not really still get the credit that it deserves for being able to do this kind of thing well, or having any kind of adult theme at all from, from some people, but this, surely if nothing else, is proof that you can do some horribly affecting uh, works um, in this medium and have it be as effective as anything. This probably made me uh, more emotional than something like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan or any of the other sort of standard bearers of, you know, supposed sentimentality or, or emotional tear jerking that there is in uh, modern cinema. This is just heart-rending. It's it's one of these things, it's just it, it becomes almost difficult to recommend in the same way that something like Requiem for Dreams is difficult to recommend. It's a very good film but it's incredibly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's Lots of lovely moments in there though um, as you as you kind of alluded to uh, just the the interaction between characters, mainly the one thing I think that this last couple of weeks have shown is that Takahata is really good at capturing just humanity yes yeah, in in a way that Miyazaki is in a cer in a kind of very narrow reference, you know, like Miyazaki's great at capturing like the, the kind of that sort of innocence of youth and that sort of thing, but I think Takahata has got just such a great handle on just the levers of humanity <laughs> that um, really does make for some very affecting films. Um, this is probably his most extreme. I think he, he manages to get almost the same results from something that, from things that are more subtle and less emotionally impactful uh, as a sort of just obvious frame of reference. You know things like you know your parents dying and all these kind of things are. Um, Quite obviously, going to have some sort of emotional effect on the audience just because of you know the very nature, but it certainly doesn't diminish yet. It's an, it's an incredibly powerful work, and yes, yeah, it's just difficult to get through. It's such a very sad film. I mean, when when the happiest thing in it is one of the characters dying and be, being reunited with the ghost <laughs> of his sister. It's like, yeah, it's a, I mean that's kind of an emotional
0: up point, but not really. <laughs> I don't think that's entirely fair because, and it's to do with, as you say, the the observation of humans. Um, mm. There are some moments that are the same sort of capture that Miyazaki does of sort of simple childhood moments. Yeah, they true. have a, but in this film they have a something of a a bittersweet element because of how it happens or what happens around them. But there are yeah. moments when, for instance, when. Seta takes sets to go to the beach and the little girl's just delighting in the ocean and thinking it's saying it's like a big bath. Mm. Um and the little moments like that, it's just that like, there's that undercurrent of pain because well you know the film begins with oh, his yes. death. Um yeah. so it's not like you it's not like it's leading up to that. The film has prepared you it, it opens with him dying.
1: And it's and whatever's going on is a distraction from the fact that your mother's dead, yes, your father's yeah. at war, you don't have a home. <laughs> um
0: Yes, but there are almost like that, which is what I mentioned earlier too about survival. It's not, I don't mean just in terms of trying to to get food to eat. I mean, in terms of mm. emotional survival too, he's...
1: Actually finding any sort of reason to go on in
0: this. Yes, um, and, <laughs> and surviving for the sake of his sister too and trying to, as much as he's able to in his very limited way, to maintain a childhood for his sister who's... Yeah. Um, it's not clear to me how old she is or how old he is in fact I believe Takahata was quoted at one point as describing Set as a ninth grader I have absolutely no idea what that means I think about <laughs> 14 or 15
1: that's I'd kind of clocked him as sort of mid-teens and his daughter and uh, the sister being nearly 10 years younger sort of yeah is that exactly
0: I wasn't sure how old he is I mean I said adolescent earlier maybe not he's, he's maybe a teenager but uh, perhaps in some ways an immature teenager um, yeah I was thinking maybe more 13 or something. Uh, But yeah, yeah, certainly his sister's probably about four or five, something around that, I would guess. It's emotional survival and trying to just shield her as much as he's able from what, just the horrors of, of the world in general, I guess, but certainly what has happened to them. And then, of course, you find out that the truth that he's been shielding her from someone else rather maliciously told her Mm. Uh, and she hasn't told him whether that's whether her attempt to to try to protect him or that she's not been able to quite process it or something I'm not sure On um, even after several viewings of this I, I've never been quite certain why she doesn't mention to him until later in the film that she knows her mother's dead yeah but yeah this so the, I mean, there are in ways uplifting things that, that he still has this spirit to go on and the and the innocence to uh, Large degree of sesuko, but that yeah, it's it's the, everything else though. It's just it's not it's not dreary or or anything like that, but it is sad, yeah, and very very downbeat because it's horrible. And I wonder perhaps why this can and they're, they're so different. I wouldn't really compare to Shindlers, but you mentioned Shindlers, that's so gotten about it being more affecting. I don't know if that's again because of something like. I mean, it's a well-observed phenomenon, but that it's easier for humans to feel empathy and sympathy towards one or two people rather than a larger group. Yeah. Or whether it's because they're children. And I suspect it's that, actually, because they're so young. Yeah. That, that this film can be so, so affecting. But it is, it's not an easy watch. And I honestly don't understand what the thinking would have been to have paired this in a double bill with My Neighbour Totoro which as much as I love My Neighbour Totoro and I could watch that film endlessly it is it is fluff certainly in comparison to this
1: one will not prepare you for the other no
0: (laughs) in fact all that watching My Neighbour Totoro before watching this is going to do is make the emotional gut punch of this considerably (laughs) harder yeah I, I don't understand that marketing at all I don't think I was I don't understand who that was meant to serve, but that's not useful. The only thing I can think is that it's because of the increased impact it would create with the story of Grave of the Fireflies is why they might have done that. But it's yeah. the tonal difference is staggering. And
1: And I mean I, I don't know exactly how Japanese distribution works, but I wouldn't be surprised if this wasn't their idea. Possibly. I, I don't know. If, I mean, it's the sort of thing you might well oh, look, two serial Ghibli films for the price of one There you go, that that, that sort of idea might, might have had some thinking from Some sort of brainless executive That doesn't actually know what they're dealing with But I can't imagine anyone <laughs> Anyone who's watched both films Let alone produced them <laughs> Would pair them together In any kind of fashion But, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that Maybe <laughs> It just, it just doesn't seem right. Like it just makes no sense on any level I can think of. As you say,
0: yeah. What I would like to point out though is, is that there's there's plenty of room in Studio Ghibli's canon for both a My Neighbor Totoro yeah. and a Grave of the Fireflies. And
1: but maybe not on the same day. Yeah, eh? <laughs> that's the thing.
0: I, I really <laughs> urge people who haven't seen Grave of the Fireflies to watch it because yes, it's a deeply affecting film, but it's also beautifully animated. It is mm. interesting. It's so well produced. It's just a wonderful film, but it's just, it's not a happy film. So, and if you have a fragile mood, perhaps it's not the best thing to watch, but it's, and, and I don't know very many people who've watched it with whom it hasn't had some sort of deep effect. When I was rewatching this a few days ago, I posted a screenshot on Twitter and all it was, was a picture of the tin of sweets, the sugar yeah. drop tin that I mentioned earlier. And I got several replies back on Twitter immediately. Like, Why would you do this to me before bedtime? <laughs> or or, or um, just like, yes, that is so sad. And that's the power of the strength of this film. Is like that one image. Suddenly these sort of feelings can rush in back. Yeah. It's a it's a powerful film. Possibly the most powerful animation I've ever seen.
1: Yeah.
0: I wouldn't like to say that in absolute terms because it's possibly something else, something that I've forgotten I've seen um, or
1: a Tsukudoji No,
0: Danger Mouse. It's, it's Danger Mouse. <laughs> so what I would, I just want to encourage people not to be put off by its downbeat subject matter. And I know I've said this on other other episodes too, but you, know, you don't need to have a happy ending every time. In fact, if you have only happy endings, only upbeat films then they lose their strength and it's also it's, it's not really a satisfying cinematic journey to only go for stuff yeah. that's happy you need, you need a little salt or sour every time with a, your with your sweetness mm-hmm. uh, it's just a fabulous film and I and th- there are a lot of Takahata's films I would urge people to watch but if you were to only watch one mm-hmm. I really think it should be this one uh, his, yeah. his, his crowning glory
1: yeah I mean spoiler warning there's nothing we're going to talk about here that I don't like but <laughs> this this is a masterpiece Really is in in a, in, a, in a different way from any of Miyazaki's works. It is as good as anything he's ever put uh, on screen. So yeah, cannot recommend this highly enough. Yeah, not not an easy watch by any stretch of the imagination, but very very powerful and rewarding.
0: Yes. So we're going to move on from this super super duper happy film <laughs> to something <laughs> that, while maybe ends with melancholy. It's a little more upbeat, and that's. 1991's Only Yesterday which Mr Morris there is going to tell us about
1: Yes, uh, as sort of alluded to earlier, I wasn't quite sure what to expect from Takahata's works but uh, certainly most of the wider Ghibli films that I've seen had some sort of fantastical bent to them uh, but by this point, of course, it seems that Takahata has a much more grounded sensibility which may be why Poko threw me for a bit of a loop but <laughs> Only Yesterday uh, is an outright drama and character piece and there's nothing wrong with that, of course in the slightest but it's worth reiterating for those that think anime concerns itself only with the outlandish. Set in the early 80s, Takeo Okajima, a 27-year-old Tokyo-based salary woman, decides to holiday with her extended family out in the sticks, while helping the Sapphire Harvest as an excuse to get out of the rat race for a while. While taking the slow train out there, she's struck by a wave of nostalgia for similar feelings as a youngster, and recollects vignettes from her life as a 10-year-old, which will recur throughout the piece. Arriving at the station, she's collected by her brother-in-law's second cousin, Toshio. He's a dedicated and passionate young farmer, extolling the virtues of organic farming back when that was rather less commonplace. And the two meet up at various points over the weeks, often discussing Takeo's views and hopes for life as a kid, and how they match up with the actuality of modern life. This all leads to Takio questioning whether she wants to return to her life at all, and realising that she may be falling for Toshio. But is this just a fanciful view of an idealised lifestyle, influenced by all this nostalgia which wouldn't hold up to a sustained stay? Or is this a true realisation of a life that she's wanted all along? And Takio takes us along that path with her, and while she reaches an answer, showing her working as she goes... There's a question mark over whether she's reached the right answer that is impossible to tell, as only time after the credits roll will tell. Now, I, for one, hope that this fictional animated character chose well, because even if she's not real, she, and Toshio for that matter, are fine young fictional people who deserve to have a fine and happy fictional life together. Akira, this is not, or Spirited Away for that matter, but that doesn't make this comparatively mundane film any less captivating than the other anime linchpins. Takio, Toshio, and all of the family seem, like, better realised and more realistic characters than most dramas I've seen in recent times, and much easier to empathise with without there really being any moments of crisis or resolution to help that along. I'm a little frustrated that I can't find much more to say about it, Hmm. at least without risking repeating ourselves too much. It obviously looks and sounds fantastic, although that will be true of all the films we talk about today. As we work through these films, we'll see that Takahata varies his style more than artists between films, although there's arguably less of a gulf between this and Grave of the Fireflies than we'll go on to see. There's perhaps a more realistic animation style to this than Grave, although in stills you would really struggle to see it, but it's certainly the right choice for this film. But the mechanical aspects are very much the least of this film's bullet points. It's a warm, human drama where, and it's sad that this must be something to applaud rather than just table stakes, nothing stupid happens. My disbelief barely required suspension at all And it's rare that this happens Along with the film also being a compelling watch And there's not much higher praise can give a film I can imagine approaching this With a preconceived notion of what anime is Or certainly what I'd seen In my teenage years for example And finding this altogether too prosaic To get into But through my old, weary, barely functioning eyes (laughs) And equally decrepit But open mind uh, This film is a treat indeed
0: only Yesterday is the only Takahata film I've seen that I struggle to muster much enthusiasm for. It's it's not meh by any means, but but it's it's fine. Only yesterday's fine. It's yes, it's beautifully animated and the characters are certainly relatable and believable. But I have watched this twice now, I think. I think only twice. And each time it's been Fine. It's <laughs> and that's probably down with faint praise, but to be honest, that's largely how I feel about it. It's yes, as you say, Scott, and as I've said, the characters are believable and relatable. It's the the interaction with people are, are well observed and natural. Mm. Something that is a real trait of Takahata's work in general. And it is Yeah, it's fine. I I don't I just don't have enthusiasm for this film. I don't mind having watched it. <laughs> And I just, I, I mean, the setup of it is that there's this 27-year-old woman and then she's having flashbacks to one particular year in her life as a child. I think as a fourth or fifth grader, I get I have no concept what that means. I think that's the same as primary five, so she would be nine? 65? Nine or something like that.
1: Search me, golf. <laughs>
0: fifth, i I don't <laughs> know, I think. I think primary one's the same as kindergarten, so fourth or fifth grade would be primary four, primary five or primary six. but
1: I'm not even sure what age I was in primary <laughs> one, so I don't think this is going to help us much.
0: <laughs> uh, but yes, but it's it's a split between her as a 27 year old and her in this one year, and it's only this one year, which I find somewhat odd that it just focuses on this one year, but there doesn't seem anything particular about that one year.
1: That's the- really why I enjoyed this so much because it's not really about anything pivotal or it's not like she's flashing back to one defining traumatic event or something. I mean, the thing that brings it on is her remembering a time when she didn't go on holiday when all of her friends go on it. it there's something about the kind of the small stakes nature of it, the the, the kind of just verity nature of of the, the the kind of reflections That she's going through in the way that this is kind of prompted. That kind of that's what made me love this film actually. Um, it's just. It's just so human and believable and have, just logical,
0: you know? I have no problem with it being not about big stakes because most children don't have big stakes. Uh, hmm. It's more just, uh, I don't know why it focuses on this one year. If it was just like uh, vaguely related or memories to what's happening in the in the present of various parts of our childhood, but it, it focuses on one year in particular and I don't know why. And... The stuff that happens to her and it's portrayed is natural. It's a kid you who know, kind of gets a bit annoyed about, but I'm not annoyed, disappointed perhaps, that she doesn't go on holiday when everybody else does. And or the family's not not poor, but they're not particularly well off either. So she, she doesn't have some things that other, her peers might have. And all of that sort of fairly ordinary stuff is actually, it can be quite entertaining. And in some points it is here. And there are some moments I genuinely love because uh, so I know some fruit in Japan is particularly expensive watermelons for some reason even though popular in Japan crazily expensive um, mm. so, so assume that's why at this period in the 1960s why a pineapple is a particularly exotic thing which seems yeah. hard to believe now when I can pop down to the supermarket next door and get an entire pineapple for one pound yeah. literally one pound that's how much Tesco charge for pineapples but, uh, <laughs> but she's so excited about this trying this incredibly exotic fruit in the middle of the 1960s and and I love that scene because the f- the pineapple, which is so unknown to this Japanese family that they don't even know how to cut it properly, and when they finally do, they realise it's not ripe yet. But this little girl is so determined to to eat this pineapple that she's been looking forward to, and it smells so wonderful yes. that she, yeah, like <laughs> she is forcing herself to eat this unripe, sour pineapple. <laughs> with, with wonderful animation, in the face of are like, <laughs> yes. it's good! and there are moments like that that are so charming and beautiful and and again believable that i really love but for for the rest of it the stuff that happens is use the word mundane scott and i don't actually think you meant that particularly as negative but for me it is right and that it's like yeah there's so much of this to me feels like here is some stuff that happened and i i kind of find myself not caring and there are i want to like this film more than i do because I just I love the animation and and there are so there are so many small character moments like like the one I've mentioned and particularly the childhood stuff uh, she's actually a less interesting character as an adult while her relationship with Toshio is, is very believable it's I don't find it particularly interesting but there are bits as a child that just that seems so charming and and I wouldn't like to put anybody off of watching this I think you should watch every film that Takahata is directed certainly for Studio Ghibli, but it's just—I don't know—I I just found it kind of, yeah. Well, for the eighth time I've mentioned this, it's fine, but it's not special. Uh, and I find I can find something special in pretty much every other film of his that I've watched, but not this one.
1: I can see where you're coming from with it. I did find it actually charming. Um, I just liked these main characters, and that goes a long way to. Mm. Sort of carrying the rest of the film. I, I really just love these characters. I thought, I thought they were both uh, quite charming, and uh, you know, I just, I, I just kind of wanted them to succeed. Um, it's the, it's the, I guess, is the closest thing we'll come to sort of something that's almost soap uh in mm. what we're talking about here. And that's damning it with a, a phrase I don't really want to give to it. But yeah, the the, the way that the the characters are are drawn, I think, just kinda of helps drawn in the narrative sense rather than the I that's what mechanical mean. of it. Um is just really quite charming I found Um I can see if you if you don't really care about the characters so much then yeah you're gonna to struggle to actually care about what happens to them and so much of it is about the about Takio deciding what she wants to do and what, what her life wants to become that uh, it's if you, if you don't really care all that much about her, then sure it's gonna to be tough to, to really latch on to the rest of the film. But um yeah, I did. So so there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly I, I did care enough about the characters to to want to see them happy. And mm-hmm. I will admit to a little moistness around the eyelids in that sequence mm-hmm. over the end credits. Yeah. And it's not really my sort of music. Well, I think I do like the melody of this, but the Japanese cover of The Rose, a song made famous by Bet Midler that plays over those mm-hmm. end credits, has been in my head for days. Um, mm-hmm. And... I I like a lot. So there are there are bits of this film I like. I just it just feels apart from me from everything else.
1: Yeah.
0: Again, please. That. Uh, if you're going to watch Takata stuff, do the full set that he's done for Studio Ghibli because there's something rewarding in each and every one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And shall we move on to something <laughs> quite quite different, Scott?
1: Yes, yes. I, going to a film that is a bit more testicle based than I was expecting. Yes, uh, the, almost exactly
0: what, that, what they've written. So. So then, yes, Pompoko, or, in its literal translation from Japanese, Haisai Era Raccoon Dog Word Pompoko, or, in the literal translation from my mind, I like this film, but my isn't obsessed with testicles, Pompoko. <laughs> raccoon dogs, or tanuki, most English subtitles apparently use raccoon, though raccoon dogs are in fact an unrelated but just similar looking species, are very common in Japanese myth and folklore. They are clever, playful, sociable, and alongside the similarly common kitsune, folkloric foxes, tanuki are reputed to have the ability to shapeshift and change their appearance, though, unlike kitsune, typically not for nefarious ends. In Pomboko, the tanuki of the Tama Hills outside of Tokyo find their homes threatened by humans as Tokyo's population grows ever larger and needs more and more space for new residential developments. Initially fighting amongst themselves over the dwindling resources in land, the competing clans are admonished by the matriarch Oroku, who tells them that to survive they must band together, and instead direct their energies towards stopping the humans. In recent times, the Tanuki of the Tama Hills have forgotten most of their ancestral shapeshifting ability, so they set about learning the techniques, while envoys are sent to distant Tanuki tribes in order to solicit aid and training from transformation masters. Their skills are then directed towards the humans building the new housing developments in something between guerrilla warfare and terrorism. And there are in fact deaths here on both sides, in an effort to make the humans leave so that the Tanuki can reclaim the land. And as this is set in contemporary Japan, you know who wins. Of all of Takahata's films, this to me feels closest in tone and style to the works of Miyazaki. Like the reputed nature of the Tanuki, Pompoko, the title comes from the sound the creatures make when they drum on their stomachs, it is a fun-loving and mischievous film, and full of testicles. Yes, it really is quite full of testicles. Rather than some fetish or obsession of the director, though, (laughs) this is a trait of the Tanuki throughout their depiction in Japanese art and stories, and it's actually often entertaining. The dubbed lines raccoon pouches instead of the faithful balls in the subtitle can get in the sea. (laughs) Like many of Studio Ghibli's films, Pompoco is at heart a condemnation of, and warning about, the cost of progress. Most particularly when it comes at the cost of the environment and the natural world. And it also has a tacit warning about forgetting one's history and ancestry, and therefore one's own essence. It's been quite a trend for me throughout this year in particular to complain about running times of the films that we've talked about, but while Takahata's films tend to run quite long for animated features, it's only Pompoko, and not even the two-hour-long Only Yesterday, that to me feels overlong, by perhaps 30 minutes or so, but not a a complaint I I make with any particular vigour, and it's still a quirky, funny, entertaining, balls-out, sorry, couldn't resist, adventure with an undercurrent of sadness and loss, and with an important message. I wouldn't put it at the top of any list, but like all those Studio Ghibli's films, it's worth watching at least once. This film is bananas <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> uh, I For you, Kyos, so if you have been following your Twitter account at all, have a look at the screenshots I posted uh, recently about from Pompoko, uh, because, yes, this film's bonkers and it's wonderful. <laughs> Why why wouldn't raccoons um, or raccoon dogs turn into um, <laughs> very strangely dressed old men who dance and fly and then have a scene where the old raccoon master explains to the class of 30 or so boys that the big red mat they're sitting on is, in fact, his testicles. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Like, if I could change my appearance to anything, I'd probably change it to those old masters as well. They looked cool as hell. They are awesome. <laughs> this is I mean, it's strange. I absolutely agree with what you're saying about them. Um, this, this looking closest to uh, Miyazaki or sort of Ghibli films in general. If you took a still from a lot of scenes in this and put it next to a Miyazaki film, I probably couldn't tell you, you know, which one was which. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Miyazaki didn't focus on testicles quite so much.
0: Again, please, don't think this is a fetish of Takahata. Uh, Japanese folklore, the uh, partly is a sign of virility, but the the way Tanuki are portrayed and have been in Japanese folklore and art for for centuries have prominent testicles. So it's it's just keeping in line with the tradition. It's not um, some sort of strange (laughs) fetish of the director that we know of.
1: (laughs) I mean, that was something I'd have to go and look up to see whether... The, the, is this film just incredibly strange or am I just missing a cultural reference? And I'm, I'm gratified to find that I was just missing the cultural <laughs> reference on it. Although I'm not uh,
0: sure how much of the genuine Japanese mythology surrounding them has involved Januki using their testicles as parachutes. <laughs> yes. A, actual scene in this film.
1: Yes, there's, there's possibly a little bit of uh, artistic license going. <laughs> uh, as a film, um, i, I I love it. I'm not sure I'd probably go back to it all that often. Um it's narratively a little bit haphazard. There's obviously a, the message there as you say the kind of ecological message, but it's not particularly well integrated into any sort of story. Yeah, certainly compared uh, to
0: say something like Nausicaa. Um, yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't um, it's it's sort of um, <laughs> mad quirky thing, testicles, mad quirky thing, testicles, environmental message, mad th- quirky thing, testicles. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It gets by because it's just so wildly inventive in a number of scenes. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on in this film that just gets me to go, What? And then immediately give it a little round of applause because there's a lot of really fantastic scenes in it's, it. And They um, laughed a lot during this quickly, film. Yeah, yeah. I think perhaps part of that is this is one of the rare cases where it uh, dodges the Drew Tavendale uh, imperative. It's got a narrator, which actually added <laughs> greatly to the experience. Um, it, it gives it a sort of almost documentarian feel at places where yeah, it's like David Attenborough's sort of had a concussion and was talking through a delirious obsession with testicles or yeah. something
0: the, <laughs> the narrator is one of the main characters in it, Shokichi I think it's Shokichi, one of the main characters right. that's actually doing the narration but yeah. yes it does very much have that sort of documentary feel about it and <laughs> it's so playful in other ways too, it, I laughed uproariously at several I don't know, I just, on a current IMDb the narrator and Shokichi are different, but I could have sworn that I read that. Because you define it later that the the narrator is one of the characters. Yes. Anyways, that but, sounds familiar, well, right, yeah. yeah. anyway. Yes, I laughed at Rose. And it's inventive at some points, too, because it, for instance, suggests it to maintain their transformed shape, the uh, Tanuki have. It requires a lot of energy and concentration. And so that energy drinks like Red Bull were invented by a Tanuki posing as a human because they needed the energy hit to keep being like a human. And there a few little things like that, just little fun ideas too. Uh,
1: yes, I have nothing particularly deep or insightful to really <laughs> add to this film, but I just enjoyed it wholeheartedly. I didn't feel it was too long, but then again, uh, as I say, it's not a film I'd probably want to go back to, but I think everyone should give this at least one viewing. Absolutely. Uh, it's incredible amount of fun looks really great it's uh, as it's perhaps con- a more conventional style in the sort of framework of a studio ghibli film than anything else that Takahata's has done it's the most ghibli-ish of the, of the, those works and
0: so it's so i think it's his most colorful quite comfortably yes yes Vibrant. and
1: yeah and it, it looks like an absolute treat um, he's got a way of making something well, something that's basically a quarry look quite beautiful <laughs> And so there's, there's, it's got that going for it. Um, visually, it's incredibly impressive. It could perhaps be shorter. That's kind of getting back to what I'm saying about the, the kind of narrative. It's just it's it's a bit all over the place. But um, it's not a sort of film that you'd really sit down and want to get a story out of. It's more a kind of I mean it's told almost as though it's some sort of war
0: documentary. Oh yeah, uh, that for the most part, too, because. Mm-hmm. You might not expect that there is actual death. There. I and mean, I wasn't joking when I mm-hmm. mentioned it earlier as it being absolutely like terrorism because the as well as several, I think, hundred in the end of the tanuki dying mm. because that is reflecting a real thing that these creatures were basically forced out by humans and they get run over by cars and trucks, etc. Yeah, um, as well as the the people that run out of food, but there are humans that die also, which is not what you would get if, for instance, Disney tackled yeah. a film like this. The, yeah. the sabotage machinery and things in the construction sites and human operators die because of that. So mm-hmm. there, there are darker things underneath the, the surface level testicles and flying wizard men <laughs> things. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, I would probably also say that if you are uh, Attack of a Virgin, then this may be the best place to start because yes, it's that the one to- that's most... Yeah, it's the one that's most kind of immediately accessible the most immediately similar to other works, mm. certainly in the Ghibli canon. So yeah, it's not only is it just an incredibly enjoyable thing to watch, but it also gives you a, a nice inroads to that uh, that world of Takahata's works. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I would heartily uh, recommend it to anyone.
0: Yes, um, absolutely. I would, I, I would agree wholeheartedly with it. I like it. More than only yesterday, quite by quite a margin actually. Okay. Though it's by no, it's nowhere close to his best film. Those are two of his films that I think are just right head and shoulders above anything else. Yeah, but, yeah, but absolutely, yes, it's accessible because just in, in style, tone for the most part, and even animation style, it's so similar to yes, a lot of Miyazaki's works and maybe just some other animations in general. That if you're looking for an entry point, go with this. And it also, it'll give you a little bit of flavour. While it's more conventional for the most part, there's a definite asterisk next to conventional there, given it's about (laughs) shapeshifting talking raccoons who beat people about the head with their enlarged testicles. (laughs) Um, And the only reason I keep going back to this is, well, A, because it's funny, but B, (laughs) because it is such a a big part of the film. But yes, it'll give you a flavour of Takahata, I think, as well. I'm sure it's being simply enjoyable. And then you just, with that little hint of the darker undertone, and the sort of more serious message that a lot of his films tend to have, mm-hmm. um, that it would just give you a wee taste of what to expect from other things. Just a hint of it, but it might be a useful, a useful learning experience. Yes. Okay, Scott, we're, we're going to go to a film now. With unless there's some sort of subtle reference, at least one hundred percent fewer testicles mentioned in the dialogue. <laughs> yes. uh, the rather distinctive looking my neighbours the Yamada's.
1: Yes, this 1999 effort follows the Yamada family, parents Takashi and Matsuko, their teenage son, Noburo, and five-year-old daughter, Nonoko, and Granny Shige, Matsuko's mother, and very much represents a return to a more grounded story (laughs) where testicles play almost no role in the resolution of any crisis. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Instead, it presents... A series of vignettes about family life, often very short, on the relationships between the family members, the most dramatic of these perhaps being the opening salvo where the family accidentally leave Nonoko behind in an department store, and more commonly focused on events such as Takashi and Matsuko's battle for TV remote control supremacy. The battle for the 80s. It's played out in many a front room across the land. If the art style and story structures puts you in mind of a newspaper comic strip, well, that's not too far off the mark mm-hmm. of the social source material this adapts. Imagine an handicap strip where the characters actually love each other. <laughs> uh, it's the rawest of styles that Takahata has used, to the point of being Bill plump to mess at points, with some sections sporting a really different style even to the rest of the film, such as Matsuko's run-in with the motorcycle gang towards the end of the film. This was, before preparing for this podcast, as mentioned earlier, the only Takahata film I'd seen, and I was left a little cold by it then. It's Not, I think, the easiest introduction to his work, particularly having not experienced the late 90s Japanese family dynamic myself. However, my wife has, and that's at least part of why it's one of her favourites. And in truth, there's not so much difference in families across nations that we can't all take a great deal of joy from it. I certainly enjoyed this a lot more second time round, perhaps because my expectations were properly calibrated, and perhaps because, having now seen some of his other work, it's possible to appreciate the very different style that this takes, which was both a risk and an achievement. Not a risk that paid off in financial terms, this not doing all that well at the box office, and even with my revised level of appreciation for it, it's still the Takahata film that I like the least. It's important to note that, for all that, I still like it. It's a charming film, and my only actual problem with it stems from the aforementioned lack of familiarity with the generalised Japanese family unit this is looking to mine comedy from. Uh, This means there's more than a few occasions where there's obviously a set-up to a punchline that lacked any sort of punch, but I'm assured of their efficacy for those in the intended audience. Uh, so, yes, it's probably the least essential of Takahata's films to catch up with, but it's still well worth watching, and there's not many director's outputs that we, we could say that
0: about. This, for me, definitely not the least of Takahata's works. I, I think I've made that clear that that, for me, is only yesterday. I This was the only Takahata film that I'd somehow managed to avoid seeing before <laughs> preparing for this You're podcast. like the inverse me. In many ways, I'm like the inverse you. I have no idea what that meant, but it sounded good. But okay, um, <laughs> yes, it's the only one that I hadn't seen again. Obviously, I, I had owned it for many, many years because that's what I do. I collect films that I really want to watch and don't watch them.
1: I'm saving them for a rainy day.
0: And I am pleased to find out that I adored this film. It's silly. It's not at the level of, for instance, Grave of the Fireflies, but it's so funny. I mean, certainly, I'm sure there are there are nuances at least that I am missing. And you mention it being having particular punchlines that Mako assures you that having, with her experience of having lived in Japan, that, mm. that would work for a particular Japanese audience. But in general, I, I think what is so good about this film is that, that in many, many ways, family life is pretty universal because yeah. while there are, there are differences in etiquette and cultural norms and things, everybody across the planet is still a human. You know, but we all come equipped with the same equipment, same type of brain and things, and for testicles, yes. <laughs> um, but we don't all come with testicles, otherwise there wouldn't be any more of us, Scott. You you seem to have misunderstood basic biology you there. Sh- but are you sure about that? <laughs> I'm fairly sure, unless um, something's been really hidden from me in all the relationships I've had. Yes, uh, <laughs> but really, I think what is why it works so much, mate, is this is so universal the the sort of friction between the family, like the eternal battle for the remote control and and things like that. And there were some bits of this that just made me laugh so, so much. And in part because it's so relatable. It's, it's, there is no strong, well, i say there's no strong, there is no narrative to this film. It is just, yeah. uh, it is simply a, a series of vignettes. So in many ways, not just the source material, but uh, just to make present it is like a comic strip. But it's, it's so funny. But even from the very beginning, there's that wonderful scene where Uh, the husband is asked to go out and get some groceries and the wife says to him, do you want to write it down? He says, no, I'll remember, and he lists it off. Hmm. And then there's a a second later uh, and you realise just afterwards that he's actually, he's been out to the house and come back and he, he lists perfectly, word for word, everything he was asked to get and then simply says, the only thing is I forgot to actually buy them. I remembered all of them but I forgot to buy them um, <laughs> and that just slayed me and that's quite other and it just set the tone perfectly for me. It is yep. Yeah, it's not a, a film you can particularly analyse it's and the animation style is it, quite simplistic but much I like I think one of the things that I like particularly about Takahata's work is that it is so varied yeah, so, absolutely. there's so much difference in his visual style and this one particularly stands out for instance, the, the next film we'll talk about is very artful. This isn't, it, it's very minimal, very simplistic, but I actually think it works very well. And it's just nice to see something look different. It is, it's just a really funny film. The idea of the family and the way they interact with each other, is largely universal. I, I suspect there aren't many people, at least in a, I know Japan's not in the West, but in a, in a more developed, because people in less developed countries will have different, demands on their needs and attention so it may not work quite so well there but it is fairly universally recognizable i think those those little fictions the the children doing what they do it is it's just really funny it's i enjoyed a considerable deal more than i enjoyed only yesterday even though that other film has a a much stronger narrative this this doesn't need it it's just funny and In a way that, well, there, there's certainly a lot of humour in, particularly Pompoco, that this film is the only Takahata film at Ghibli anyway that is a comedy. And I love it. Uh, I'm I, I really, rather irritated with myself that I've waited so long to watch this because I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> um, I just don't, well, one thing I don't understand about it is why it's called My Neighbours the Yamada's.
1: Um yeah. it, it implies a narrator that doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. I mean it
0: almost it be, sort of begins with the daughter, the youngest member of the family, talking about her parents and her brother and their grand that lives with them. Hmm. And I sort of got the idea then that um it's using neighbours in a uh, not a strict sense and that like so these are the people that live near me even though they're my family. And then that narration is dropped after the Pretty much the first vignette, and it's never come back again. So <laughs> I remain slightly confused by the name, and I, I do believe it's correctly translated. It's not like it's lost something to the translation because it's called Hoko Kekyo Tonari no Yamadakun, and my neighbor Totoro is Tonari no Totoro. So, assuming yeah. that word is this neighbor, <laughs> then it's accurately translated. I, I've done so much research; I didn't bother to check that. I'm just remembering <laughs> it just now. But other than that, it's really funny. And I recommend watching it just for that. It's, it's really entertained by it.
1: I will concede that Nonako, the uh, daughter, is one of the cutest characters that's ever been put on a uh, film. Really charming. You can see why the uh, source material sort of eventually focused on her as the, the kind of protagonist and everything and sidelined the rest of the family. I'm saying I only thought this was okay, but I, I certainly recommend that people watch it. But as I say, it's like all things. If it's a comedy, I just... Didn't find it all that funny, which is the, the the critical and perhaps only criticism you can make of comedies. Uh, mm. Is I thought it was only just you know fine to to use your term rather. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would still happily recommend it to anyone. Um, well worth looking at. Um, I've not seen, and perhaps I might go back at some point and watch the English dub. I'm interested to see what they've done with that. If have they actually changed anything or do they keep it, or is it just a literal translation? The same with the subtitled versions that I've seen so far have been. Uh, that might be something to look at in a way that uh, might be more interesting than some of the more narrative heavy ones. But yes, um, regardless, um, I've only watched the subtitled ones and I thought they were Quite enjoyable, so yes, that's if you th- if you think that's a harsh criticism of film, then well, more fool you. But yeah, certainly worth worth looking at, and oh, yes, well worth uh, putting onto your schedules. Uh,
0: again, with the, there is not a film amongst these that I would not recommend watching at least once. Yeah, but this one, yes, I enjoyed a, a great deal more than only yesterday. Possibly on a par with how much I enjoyed Pompoco. For me, it's it's up there, and although. It's not a criticism, it's more just an observation, but Nonoko, the little girl, she didn't half make me think of Kyle's little brother in South Park, because she's drawn so differently from the rest of the characters, these big black eyes and sort of the straight nose and round hair, she's (laughs) so like um, Ike from South Park. Don't kick Nonoko. Don't kick Nonoko. Okay, and finally then, because... Takahata's output at Studio Ghibli, while excellent, isn't numerous, so we move on to our fifth and final film. Takahata itself's last film for Studio Ghibli is The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, based on the 10th century story The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, widely considered to be the oldest existing piece of Japanese prose. An elderly bamboo cutter, Miyatsuko, comes across a glowing bamboo stalk in the forest one day. Cutting open the stalk, he is surprised and who wouldn't be, to find a tiny, Thumbelina-like human inside. A minuscule princess that the Babu cutter interprets as a gift from heaven. And really, if you're not surprised by that, you're either remarkably stoic or have a considerably more interesting life than I do. (laughs) He returns to his wife, and when she holds the tiny girl, she suddenly transforms into a baby. The childless couple then vow to raise the child as their own, and the bamboo cutter's wife's body responds by beginning to produce milk so that she can feed the child. Through the course of a spring and summer, the child, referred to by the other local children as Takinoko, Little Bamboo, grows at a miraculous pace, gaining kilos within moments of being in her mother's arms, growing a year's worth of height while falling down a hillside. As she grows and learns, she makes friends with the other children, in particular Sutimaru the son of a family of turners. Meanwhile, her father, the bamboo cutter, discovers more mysterious glowing stalks in the forest, one filled with gold nuggets, the other with beautiful silks, and reasons that the heavens want them to provide little bamboo with a life befitting of such treasures, in essence, to make her a genuine princess. Makes sense. Seems perfectly cromulent to me. (laughs) He uses the gold to have a palace built in the capital, and when it is ready, the family move there, forcing Takinoko to leave behind her friends and the life in the location where she was content. But life in the palace is happy enough for her at first, as she delights in the grounds and the kimonos that have been crafted from the beautiful silk that Miyatsuko found in the forest. Things begin to worsen though, when a governess called Lady Sigami is brought to the palace to instruct Takinoko on how to be a noble princess which, in addition to things like etiquette, calligraphy and koto-playing, seems to largely consist of all the things she can't, or shouldn't, do. Like, you know, ever be happy. The real downturn comes after her naming ceremony, when she is given the name Kaguya, meaning shining light. She realises that she has little say over her own life, and is expected just to become a wife to a noble lord or prince. Five such suitors come to see her, though Kaguya dispenses with each by using her considerable wit and intelligence though the inadvertent death of one causes much hurt to her. Her true crisis comes when the Emperor himself hears of her great beauty, and he considers that she therefore must be a prize for him alone to have. His unwanted advances cause her heart to cry out for help, something which sets in motion an unstoppable chain of events, as well as allowing her to realise her true identity and origin. This is, uh, I don't want to go too much into details of the plot here, particularly because this is such a recent film, what we'll say is, damn, this is a pretty film. It's mostly animated in a watercolour style, with some passages later, like a dream sequence after the naming ceremony celebration, animated in charcoal and a pencil style that, and interesting you mentioned earlier, that makes me think a little of Bill Plimpton, um, Mm. that is a constant visual delight. Miyazaki Hayo gave an interview and video, I believe for Japanese television, in 2014, which... In his crotchety, grumpy, but correct old man way, he decried much modern anime, stating that the industry was full of otaku and that they were screwing it up. Uh, If you're not familiar with the term otaku, it can be fairly well translated into English as fanboy, specifically in this case that of anime. You see, whether you can draw like this or not, being able to think up this kind of design, it depends on whether or not you can say to yourself, "Oh yeah." Girls like this exist in real life. If you don't spend time watching real people, you can't do this because you've never seen it. Some people spend their lives interested only in themselves. Almost all Japanese animation is produced with hardly any basis taken from observing real people, you know. It's produced by humans who can't stand looking at other humans. Um, Now in that interview, he is specifically talking about his own style, but it absolutely applies to the works of Takahata. Now, my breadth of knowledge and experience of anime isn't anywhere close to sufficient and complete enough to know whether this is an accurate description of the state of the industry in general. But I've certainly seen enough evidence of it, so I'm inclined to agree. Yeah,
1: plus that boy knows a few things. Yes,
0: (laughs) as much as he does tend at times towards crotch the old man, as people who have been in any um, line of work for a long time tend to do, Unless they're a woman, which used to become crotishy old women. Uh, <laughs> but I'll take Takata's word for it that it's, it's true for the rest of it. I have seen enough evidence and enough anime to know that it's, it seems plausible that it's a, a general trend. More pertinently to this discussion, you really notice when the animated depiction of humans is particularly well observed. And the tale of the Princess Kaguya is yet another example of Studio Ghibli being masters of the craft. As I mentioned in my introduction, Takahata doesn't himself draw, but he clearly selects, and then directs, skilled animators who are keen observers. This is perhaps even more important in Takahata's more stylized work, for instance My Neighbours the Yamadas, and particularly this film, where the faces and animation are simpler, and the characters' natures and behaviour must be displayed in subtler ways. Reaction, body language, etc. One particularly fine example here is Kaguya as a baby. Her crawling, tumbling and then attempting to stand is beautifully observed and clearly animated by people who have taken the time and care to study the real behaviour and then translate it to the screen in a natural way. There are copious others but I am always struck by the simple but authentic movements of the baby as I am by, for example, how utterly accurate and credible Mei is as a young child in my neighbour Totoro beyond simply a measure of skill it's remarkable how good a thing can be when it is clearly made by people who care and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya is absolutely a shining example of that it's really so full of wonderful detail one that really sticks in my mind and has done since the first time I saw this film I think this is now my third viewing that I did um, this week for this podcast and it's such a simple thing but so easily missed the bandage on the foot of one of the lathe turners as she makes a bowl, which is just such a a subtle touch but illustrates the animator's skill and care and attention perfectly, as well as so many others too numerous to mention and really better observed firsthand. The whole film is just a beautiful place to be. It also sounds wonderful too, with a great score. His first for Takahata film from long time Miyazaki collaborator Joey Sashi. Though one of the few complaints I have with the film, indeed possibly the only complaint, is that music is overused, as in some moments I wished for silence. Hisashi's score fits well with, for example, the flying scene towards the end with Kaguya and Tsutomaru soaring over the landscape, but in smaller moments, for example when the baby Takonoko is crawling around her parents' hut chasing frogs, I would much have preferred no musical accompaniment or at least something gentler and quieter, like a refrain of the children's song that is a recurring motif throughout. But really, those are the most minor niggles, and I just can't recommend this film enough. It's rather downbeat ending and melancholy tone may put some off, but it's not dour or miserable, and... well, and the art alone, let alone the story, is more than enough reason to watch it. It is a beautiful thing indeed.
1: I have made just the one note for *A Tale of Princess Kaguya*, and it is also wow, <laughs> Be- because um, it is another film with its heartbreaking ending. Um, it's not quite so bad as *Grave of the Fireflies* because it's not quite so consistently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's actually better or worse because there's moments in this that are just pure joy and you know just just really happy moments in this film, and then the ending is. Um, very much a gut punch, and I was expecting it to be, to be at least a little bit of an upbeat ending to some aspect of it, and there really isn't. It's like, it's like oh my god, this is this is a this is a very sad ending. I I, I am not going to bed a happy bunny after watching <laughs> this film, but it is just absolutely incredible. Um, another film I'd not seen until this week for no particular reason, but it is just. The most beautiful animated film I've ever seen. Uh, the style of it is just uh, phenomenal. It's I, gorgeous. It. It's absolutely, absolutely jaw dropping. I mean, I'm just looking at the uh, just a web search of uh, Princess Gigi G- G- on Google Images. So I, could, I could scroll through this basically for eternity. Uh, absolutely beautiful film. Sounds fantastic as well. I, I didn't notice it being overscored this time round, but um, maybe on repeat viewing that may may show up a bit more. But uh, uh yeah, just a wonderful tale. I know I'm uh, approaching this the wrong way, given the age of the story, but it kind of reminded me reminded me a little bit of a uh, Kubo and the Two Strings when I was watching this. It's a sort of vaguely similar sort of feel to the story beats of it.
0: Yeah, I, I um, think was they're both pulling yeah. from archetypal Japanese yeah. tales. I think although this is yeah. it's almost. Is very much an archetypal Japanese tale with, a, with some slight twists uh, with uh, that very traditional tale, the tale of the bamboo cutter. But yes, yeah. I, I see absolutely where you're going with that reference to Kubo. Also a truly yeah. magnificent and beautiful film.
1: Yes, um, and had I seen this in the year it came out, it would probably have been my film of that year because it's just absolutely incredible.
0: So, um, just when you mentioned that it being film of the year too, that this film was not... And it's well documented now how little we yeah. can have yes. the, the Academy Awards, but uh, this is a, an excellent example of of how wrong they are and why you should never pay attention to them, but people still do. Um, and yes it sounds, I don't care for them, it sounds like I do because I'm obsessed with them, but only because mm-hmm. they're so consistently wrong. Um, this was nominated for, a, uh, for an Academy Award that year, as was, oh, there was another really good film that year too, um, oh, yeah, Song of the Sea, uh, the really beautiful animation, Song of the Sea. The film that won the award that year was Big Hero 6. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, I have no problem with Big Hero 6. It's an entirely acceptable film. I enjoyed it, right? But it is a, a CGI animation of a fairly standard action story, <laughs> right? It's not remarkable. And there are other Disney related films that are. A, an animated CGI take on the archetypal action film most notably The Incredibles that do it a thousand times better so in a year when you had two beautiful films including um, Takahata's possibly crowning glory I don't know how you could pick between this and Grave of the Fireflies actually um, but such a beautiful film of such a classic tale so affecting so deep and it wins uh, sorry it loses to Big Hero 6 what is wrong with these people?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I, I can only assume either the people voting for it have no taste at all, of which we have had ample evidence, so it's possible <laughs> that, or just the fact that Disney's marketing budget massively outweighs um, whatever yeah. they would put towards this Japanese import. But what a spectacularly poor decision that was.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would be repeating everything you said there. It's just just a beautiful film. Uh, Kaguya is such a captivating character. Um, the animation style is fabulous. Uh, just every frame is an absolute treat. Sounds great. Uh, the story is strong. I mean, obviously, the, the, the way that it's basically a direct translation of a, a, a many a storied folktale. Yeah, a millennial um,
0: old folktale too. It's particularly yeah, well known yeah. in Japan.
1: Yeah, and I'm not all that familiar with it myself, but, I mean, you can... It, it is obviously a story from the ages. It's not something it would perhaps hold up quite so well in a, a sort of more in, modern narrative, but it's, it's still a beautiful story. And, uh, yeah, as I say, the ending of it is just, just as crushing as the worst moments of Grave of the Fireflies.
0: Yeah, there's, there's such it's, horrible... It, it's not downbeat in the way that Grave of the Fireflies is, but there's just this horrible sense of loss Yes, Towards exactly. the end isn't there It yeah, yeah. really weighs on you
1: yeah. Without spoiling too much of it It's just just the way that that loss will be felt Will not be felt by someone else Is even more heartbreaking For those feeling the loss um, <laughs> Which will probably Hopefully make some sort of sense if you've seen the film uh, But yeah it, it is a heartbreaking Ending from the perspective of the uh, Poor humans who were left on earth as Kiku returns to when whence she came And yeah t- but but overall, it's just such a beautiful tale. It's such a captivating tale, that mm. it's uh, difficult not to just give the highest recommendation for everyone to rush out and watch it immediately. Um, in in the way that you can't perhaps do with *Grave of the Fireflies*. There's always a a concern that that's a bit too
0: just. Can, it's just it's not just quite as relentlessly <laughs> downbeat. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes. It, it's not quite as. Uh, relentless about it and the way that there's an awful lot of just absolute moments of joy in, in Kaguya where you can more happily recommend it because yeah, 90% of this film is just wonderful and it's only the few moments in the ending that really packs a punch but that really just, just leavens the sort of range of the film. Takahato took quite a lot of flack for this just because of the, the amount of time that this was stating for but it's absolutely worth it. Um, oh, yes. if you want oh, okay you can take what was this a it was over a decade wasn't it in works or something like that yeah, it, was, it was an thir- awfully long time
0: 14 <laughs> years it was in, in yeah. works for yes. Wait,
1: wait, you could have happily taken another 20 if you like because this is this, this is worth waiting for. What a wonderful film. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Yes I I quite like it. I don't know if you can <laughs> tell that. Um yes. uh, I I'm, I'm just trying to get that across to you that if you've not seen this you should watch it.
0: I I don't think I could choose between this and Grave of the Fireflies because they are so different in, in many ways. Uh, yeah. They're both superb films and, as I said in my introduction, at least equal of Miyazaki is best. Again, I'm i not sure oh, yeah. I would want to particularly argue the point because they're A so different in tone, the best of Miyazaki and the best of Takahata. Yeah. Although I would argue that more people should watch this simply because Takahata is unfairly less well known than yeah. the Miyazaki less celebrated but it would be just yeah, arguing. This thing is tremendous this thing is also tremendous which is the most <laughs> tremendous thing? Well, I don't know lives are, are in the scheme of the universe short but I, I suspect there's enough time to watch the Miyazaki films and the Takahata films and yeah. <laughs> it's I don't know, it's, I just love this film so I think it's that's the third time I've seen it now I this is a film I'm going to return to again and again I, mean, I could it's one of those films where I could just turn the sound down and just look at it it's beautiful mm. and and yes the I think what really marks out Takahata in his work at Studio Ghibli in particular is that his styles are so are so different the f- styles of the films he makes uh, sure I and mean, I, I wonder if that is perhaps because he is himself not an animator whereas because Miyazaki is an artist very often we'll find a particular style and then their their work is marked out from that. Whereas Takahata himself not being an animator doesn't draw himself, then he's less attached to one particular style, which is what has perhaps allowed him as a director to have so much difference in his different films in the animation style. But it's... I've lost the point I I was starting to make there. (laughs) Yes. Watch it. Watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. And what is... I love the character. This is another example of the incredibly strong female character um, that is such a, a distinctive aspect of Studio Ghibli's output. And and Kaguya is fantastic. There's something, perhaps this is, is less original than something like a Kiki or a Chichiro, but because it's based on this, this myth or this ancient story. But there's something so satisfying about this girl who finds herself in this horrendous position and in the way of of medieval stories she's probably 12 or 13 I think, well in terms of perceived age she's actually like 8 months old at the beginning (laughs) of this uh, because of well because of magic, literally because of magic but there's so much joy to be had in seeing her finding herself in this horrible position where she's expected to marry these selection of Goons, goons, are, um, <laughs> old, or um, another way, some of uh, disreputable, dis- disreputable men. Yes, and the way she gets around this is when they begin to compare her to all these mythical or uh, storied treasures. Uh, well, then perhaps you just want to go and get it, um, get those for me, and, and then undoing their their attempts to to fool her, and not necessarily always in expected ways either that there's, a, there's one of the characters who's one of the suitors who you think oh he's being very very clever that, that what you really want is this and he's trying to be all artistic and then it gets undercut mm-hmm. in a completely unexpected way yeah. it's wonderful <laughs> and it's, it's so satisfying to see this character do this and then and they say, it's almost heartbreaking that she, that she feels real heartbreak that one of the characters dies as yeah. a result of trying to, to meet up to her expectations but at the same point it's like, yeah she's a child and also a woman and she doesn't have a lot of choice that this is what's expected of her and i mean yeah there are i'm going to mention i, I, I would mention this, this is an episode worth listening to the lantern cast did uh an episode on the tale of the princess Kaguya, which is very much worth listening to uh, episode 21 i believe and erica while she was talking about that said that while she was watching this she was expecting that there were going to be some in the very least uncomfortable scenes when it came to the Carter's wedding night. And that yeah. that tension is certainly there in the film that fortunately doesn't come to that. But that's always there and it just it makes the the way that she uses her wit to get out of the situation to which she would otherwise be put so satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just it's just a wonderful, wonderful character to watch. And the whole film is great. Really the the, the single problem I have with this film is that and I don't remember noticing the last time you said you didn't notice your first time watching it. Scott said so the last time I watched, it, I didn't remember. But is the score there? There are points where it's like it's not that the score is bad by any means. It just it points feels unnecessary, mm-hmm. and I just think a few moments of quietness would have just been fine. Not necessarily the score under, undoes what's happening. It's sports. it didn't need anything. It was fine just as it was. It was this little girl, this baby playing about i didn't need a score to tell you how to think that's mm, the yeah. only criticism i have this film which is otherwise perfect for me
1: yes it's not a bad generic call for all films really that um, but uh, yeah as I, say, I didn't particularly notice it um, in this film um, again again as you mentioned it looks fantastic and his style is you know, varies throughout it. very so but i think the one constant that i've seen through this week with Eze's films is that he just captures human emotion and human actions, certainly adult human emotions, better than anyone I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. We mentioned the Miyazaki one; how well he can capture the, the kind of kids. <laughs> yes. and sort of referred going to say earlier. Yeah, he but, does
0: seem deep. Yeah, because sorry, sorry, Scott. I don't mean to interrupt. You. It's just that, for instance, and I said it when we did Miyazaki, the way that May and her sister in my neighbour Totoro, and particularly me when she comes to the school, but when the kids are just mm. running about the house, it, it, yes, it just grabs, it, it gets mm. kids. And yeah. on the other end of things, Takahata gets adults.
1: Yeah, and I think Takahata does about as well with kids, uh, but Ooh. in terms of adults, he's far better. There's not much in the way of Mizaki's works that I'd probably criticise, but yeah, he, he he can't do adults the way that uh, Izio Takahata has here. Uh, and the... the just throughout the whole arc of his work, the way that he shows all of humanity as part of this this horrible tapestry that we weave for ourselves uh, is really just quite fantastic. And I've never seen anything like it in not just animated works, pretty much anything. You know he he's as good an observer of just human emotion and human interaction mm-hmm. uh, as anyone I've ever seen. Yeah, that's in terms of their film outfits, and that's really what's made his work uh, quite so remarkable for me, and uh, yeah, why really he ought to be far more lauded and elevated and more celebrated than he is. Yes,
0: yeah, and that that's particularly why I like my neighbours the Yamadas so much, is mm. that that it just seems such an accurate observation of real people. Yeah, yeah, that um, yeah, yes, the. Well, cause there's, actually there's nothing just go, to go back to my neighbours that you mad for a moment there's nothing far fetched about what happens you know a kid gets left in a in a shopping centre there are some sort of the domestic strife issues strife's a bit strong but slight domestic friction the, probably, the
1: usual sort of domestic frictions that become magnify, magnified and yeah. uh, elevated just by uh, <laughs> rep- repetition more than anything else
0: yes but yeah. uh, but the, the the I think the word and I used it talking about I've forgotten it, it was possibly this it seems like so long ago I've I've talked so much but um, it's authenticity Mm -hmm. there is so much authenticity in this depiction of humans and I I love it, I think it's there doesn't tend to be much in setting aside magical raccoon dogs with their huge (laughs) hairy testicles and their which is what one. I most identify with, to be honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, there's there's such authenticity in his observation and depiction of humans. So so little, even when it's a fantastical story like the tale of Princess Kaguya. Is it because even when there's fantastical surroundings, the characters feel like people, really feel yeah. like people, not characters, people, uh, yeah. I, and. I, and yes, I. I don't think I was this enthusiastic about Miyazaki when we spoke about him. We did two podcasts covering his work, and I yeah. love Miyazaki's work. I, I'd really, I, I, because sometimes I just want to watch something that's simple, pure joy, like my neighbor Totoro. You know, and it's not every day you can watch a grave of the Fireflies. So I really I don't want to pick between them because they are both so great, and between them, I've founded this wonderful studio that's given me so much joy and so many other people so much joy, and is 110 million times better than Disney, um, because <laughs> yeah. Disney have made four good films ever. Yet yeah, there's something about Takahata's observations of the human character that I don't think I've seen anything quite like. Certainly not in animation, um, and possibly in a great deal of other filmmaking as well, and. I, I just wish more people knew him. The Miyazaki name, I mean, Studio Ghibli is well known to us and always, it's been for a long, long time I think and people mm. who really know cinema and animation know those names. Outside of that though, I still don't think it's that well known a name. And that's Miyazaki.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. So, uh, yeah. it Takahata? I I suspect you mentioned that name to the vast majority of people and they're going to go, "Huh," eh? mm. Which is just, that's a crime. Uh, this man's work deserves to be seen so if you're listening to this and you are not familiar with Takahata's work, please just do yourself a favour and watch it it's wonderful stuff and you've, you've really been cheating yourself by having not watched up to this point if that is indeed the case mm-hmm.
1: I agree with Drew <laughs> Smart his man. thoughts and feelings reflect mine
0: <laughs> so those are our thoughts on the works of Takahata also, but but you you have thoughts also. People out there, at least two of you. <laughs> so let us let us move to the Twitter's. We asked you just in general what you thought about the works, the uh, waters or what is our earliest.
1: Well, the first bit of feedback I think goes from someone called Mako Makita. Oh, um, this this this
0: Mako Makita uh, or or Mako Mako Makita Miko Miko Mikita Morris, she might otherwise be you known. Stranger, Boris to... Makita, actually. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Um, uh, stranger to me, certainly. <laughs> 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 what does what this uh, this Mako, as she seems to yes. call herself, have to say, Scott?
1: Yes, I actually hope to have her on this podcast, actually. But um, yeah, uh, but she's always liked Tonari no Yamada kun which I think means <laughs> my, neighbor tu- my, neighbor <laughs> my neighbor the my neighbor the Tonaris, my neighbor the my neighbor the Amahas. I think that's what it means. Uh, yeah, it, it's an accurate social reading of family life in Japan. That is from the. Nineties that I remember from when she did live over there. Which I, also, which I
0: thought was um, hmm. interesting too. When I read that, that Mako thought that was particularly like Japanese life. But again, I I do feel that that film is particularly universal because yes, while maybe we're in the West, we're missing some some particular references, some subtleties that. To me, it just felt universal.
1: Like 80% of it transfers over very accurately to any sort of... yeah, yeah. The Um, the family dynamic is
0: is so relatable and recognisable, I believe. It doesn't feel in any way particularly Eastern or particularly Japanese. It, It feels human.
1: Yeah. Um, Attack on Movies, under, which is Attack on Movies underscore, who does a perfectly good podcast over there. I'm very happy with those guys. Um, they just basically agree with us. Uh, we'd we'd forgotten how delightfully odd Attack as Bomboko is, and they agree that it's deeply weird, but in a good way. <laughs> and uh, yes, Bomboko is just weird but great. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. Um. Also, yes. At Blake Rice, Perpetual Dumb Machine. Blake from I'm the Host podcast. Hello. Said that. Grave of the Fireflies is one of those rare films that I would describe as both crushingly sad and worth seeing at least once in your life. Um, yes. The only point in which I would disagree is the number of times in which you ought to see that <laughs> because <sighs> one is not sufficient. But yes, you it's a wonderful film. I would strongly suggest that people watch that.
1: Friends, as previously mentioned, The Magic Lantern, at lantern underscore cast, uh, agreed it. Takahata's less famous, yes, but his best are the equal of Miyazaki's best, Grave of the Fireflies and Princess Kaguya are particular favourites. A more varied stylistic output as well. We are big fans of Takahata, bit skill and underappreciated by most, which is exactly what we said. So. <laughs> so
0: they basically, in yes. one tweet, they've <laughs> said, what I have spent the last 18 hours or whatever this is before the edit saying that, <laughs> um, yes, uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you've said. It's cool. I say cold because I know cold runs the, the account by Stuart Erica feels at least largely similarly, although she's, she's less enamoured of animation in general. But yes, yes, you're correct. <laughs> Sorry, is my um, consumption of wine showing through it maybe by this point?
1: A few mentions. Uh, the, the story of Yanagawa's canals, which uh, popped up um, from an article by HeartBeeps uh, at HRTBPS. <laughs> Who I, I I mainly follow for his political output, but uh, yes, he wrote a very nice article about the uh, story of again, I was canals as well. What reading on Medium? Um, you'll see that link, knocking around in our feed as well. Agree that it's uh pretty good. So that's uh, retweeted from the likes of Miss RF and MI Five UK.
0: Yes, um, and then we got something from the think from good friend Lewis. Lewis Clark um, at Sonic Yoda, who's <laughs> um, currently calling himself Fairy Tale of New Donk, which he's combined his, his, his usual Christmas Twitter name with my, Super Mario Odyssey. So well done on that for getting both of those things in there. Um, he says, First of all, Grave of the Fireflies is one of the greatest war films of all time. I agreed. Extremely personal, moving little piece. Would not have wanted to see that double build with Toto on original release, though, which actually on my own account we talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. He was one of the people who responded to the picture I posted of that. Simply the, the tin of the sweets that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, we were talking about... That's an emotional gut punch. Those two films don't go mm-hmm. together. Though they don't belong together. They're both wonderful films, but you don't want to watch one after the other.
1: Like Chalk and Cheese, like Trump and the presidency. <laughs> it's just two things that should never be put together.
0: Yeah. Uh, he goes on to say, and he's given us lots of feedback, so thank you very much, Lewis. We appreciate it. I Love Only Yesterday... Um, so I think see you're wrong Drew <laughs> yes I think he's more towards me and Lewis say you're more wrong more towards the Scott end than the Drew end of things but I don't dislike Only Yesterday but certainly I, I don't rate it as highly as, my, as the other Takahata films I love Only Yesterday just a beautiful little coming of age story ending really tugs on the old heartstrings that is certainly true um, in as much as possibly it veers towards the romantic comedy romantic drama type of Hollywood ending it still works mm. so that's fine Definitely the first time I remember getting a bit teary over a Jubilee film. Uh, for me, no, because I I saw, um, gave her the Fireflies a <laughs> long time okay, before the saw fireflies
1: that. And you were
0: bawling for a week, like <laughs> I was. Yes. Uh, I don't know how I'm holding you together for this podcast, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he continues so on to um, the raccoon testicle film. Uh, Pompoco is bizarre, certainly true. Although. Raccoon wizards are awesome. Raccoon dog wizards are the best of things. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, flying raccoon dog wizards. I, I should taste uh, in that. Pompo goes bizarre, but as it goes on, salute unravels as a metaphor for World War Two. That I don't see. That is not a reading of that film I see at all, but I appreciate that you've seen that in it. i will have to look at that again to see, to see where you see that. I, I see the environmental message, but not a metaphor for World War II. But the connections to Fireflies becomes more apparent. I think it's a bit uneven tonally, and the stuff with magical ball sacks doesn't really translate well. But a very unique film either way. Yes, it's certainly unique. I, I, I'm not sure how many films I've seen with magical flying raccoon dog wizards um, beating people about the head with their enlarged testicles. But that's a very, <laughs> very, very niche genre. And then finally he says... Never really clicked with My Neighbours the Yamadas. It feels like a series of vignettes, well, which it is, uh, there, there is no central narrative to that film. More than a cohesive film with a story that permeates the whole thing. I also find the message of families should stick together a bit conservative, which is odd for Jubilee. But I'm not so sure that the the message is families should stick together. I I would say that I don't really think that film's got a message. It's more here's a fairly yeah. believable family.
1: Yeah, that's. Nah, I agree with that, yeah.
0: But yes, uh, so thank you very much for re- replying to us. We do appreciate it and I, I'm glad to see that other people out there appreciate Takahata films at least as much as we do. Absolutely. And for those of you who are listening to this who aren't as familiar with Takahata's works, we're really hoping, and certainly part of the purpose of this podcast is to to share our enthusiasm for films or to warn you of certain ones, but that if it's a film you've not seen that it would encourage you to watch and I think perhaps more than any podcast episode we've done thus far it's this one I only really realised talking about these films with Scott but it's this this podcast more than any others where I hope that it would encourage you to go and check out the films that we've covered because I, I think Takahata's work is just wonderful truly truly wonderful stuff
1: Yes. So uh, we will catch you next time, uh, but until we meet again, I've been Scott Morris and I wish you a farewell, and I'm sure Ruth Avendale does too.
0: Yeah, okay then. Bye bye. A <laughs> fond farewell from me, also.